Welcome, everyone, to our episode of Artifact. Today, our guest is Dr. Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephen Brown. I am the Vice President of Wildlife and Natural Heritage at the Royal Commission for Alula. All right, Dr. Stephen, pleasure to have you. And it's nice seeing you for the first time in person. You are Alula's leading expert currently in Alula. What is wildlife? I'm one of many experts here in Alula, but wildlife is my speciality. Wildlife really, it covers everything. It's quite a generic term. I think it's everything that's non-human effectively. Mm-hmm. It could be everything from nature. Nature is everything from a stone, to the water, plants, to animals, everything. And then if you have all those things working together, that's what we term as an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. When normal average people think about wildlife, they might just think of like deer. I guess most Westerners thinking about wildlife are thinking about deer, they're thinking about wolves. But from what I understand, wildlife is a little bit more complicated than that, or that the term is used way more broadly. Exactly. And I think that's why my team is called Wildlife National Heritage, because there is wildlife here. As you said, there are are wolves, there are those things that people think of as wildlife, there's birds, there's insects, there's animals, there's wildlife. But what there is so much more of is this natural heritage, this the stones, it's, it's the mountains, it's the cliffs, it's the way all those things, all the things of nature have worked together, be it the wind has blown the sand which has shaped the rocks. So that's why we're thinking in Alula here more than just cute fluffy animals which everyone can relate to, but talking more about the whole environment, the whole sort of ecosystem here, so everything from stones to features to landscape. Awesome. But we don't consider like farm animals to be wildlife, like the sheep and the goats, or are you perhaps reinventing the idea of wildlife? Are they playing such a vital role that they should also be considered in the realm of wildlife? Are they having that kind of impact on nature to the level where you might have to calculate for their existence? You're right. They aren't wildlife. But of course, something like a camel. How many generations ago was the camel roaming around Arabia as a wild animal? That is now a domesticated animal. However, working with people that herd camels and the impact that camels have had historically, and maybe we'll discuss that a bit later, managing the impacts of domestic animals is actually vitally important to wildlife. Why is wildlife important to protect, Dr. Stephen? If we didn't protect wildlife, for a start, there is the sort of ecosystem function. So if you have soil and you have plants, that affects the local weather. Then it rains. If it rains, it gets captured. I mean, it's something that people can relate to is like when there was the tsunamis, areas that had mangroves, they were less affected by uh, the waves. They didn't have mangroves. So having these key elements of wildlife within our lives, that helps protect us from the, the harshness of the world. And we're seeing at the moment, yeah, there is a lot of harsh things going on. Some of the record-breaking temperatures we're experiencing in the world at the moment. If you've got trees in the street, that street is some degrees cooler than if you haven't got trees in the street. So wildlife is important for those aspects. I think having that diversity of animals and uh, habitats around us adds so much more to our lives. So you're telling me that there's also kind of an aesthetic, a humanistic value in protecting wildlife as well. But Can you indulge us a little bit about those feelings? When you're talking about protecting wildlife, what does that really mean to you? 
Okay, so if we cast our minds back to when we were all locked down for COVID, one of the things that I think many people re realized suddenly was just how important seeing green spaces. Where I come from in the UK, we were limited to one hour of exercise per day. Those days I was a keen, keen runner. So I would go running on these tracks. I would normally go by myself. Suddenly there was hundreds of people walking these tracks because people wanted to get out. They wanted to escape from their homes. They wanted to be surrounded by green. They wanted to be surrounded by wildlife and nature. And I think it then became people then suddenly realized the importance of us as humans seeing nature around us for our health. So there is that. But I fundamentally, if people say to me, why should I protect a species? What's its value to me? What's its value to this? What's, why should we save it? How does it sort of benefit my life? To me, every animal has the, has the sort of the right to exist just for the fact that it exists. Thank you so much for, for indulging us. When it comes to endangered species, what is an endangered species? What constitutes an endangered species? Why aren't all species considered endangered? When we talk about being endangered, it's the impacts pretty much of humans have affected animals in the way that they are now much lower numbers and much more fragile in the terms of they can't function as a species because of the impacts man has had or humans have had. So for example, if, you, if an animal needs to live in a big forest, then there's like 100 animals could live in 100 units of forest. If you reduce that forest by half, then maybe only half the animals could live in that forest. So that's a sort of a direct impact that humans have had. And if we keep cutting that forest down, that animal is already endangered, but it's becoming more and more endangered because we are removing its habitat. We're going to take a little break. And when we're back, we're going to talk about how environmental stresses are affecting species here in Alola. Artifact with Joshua on Alola FM podcast. The sound of Arabia. Welcome back to Artifact. And we have with us Dr. Stephen. Dr. Stephen, when it comes to Ida, what kind of environmental stresses are humans causing to increase the amount of endangered species here in Ida? The biggest one I would say is probably overgrazing. So historically, somewhere like Alula, if you look out there today, it looks quite barren. It's just the middle of summer and it's very hot outside. But after the winter rains, suddenly it greens up. And that's common across a lot of Arabia. I think this, this idea that Arabia is 100% desert 100% of the time is completely incorrect. As you know yourself very well, deserts become green and full of flowers. That green and flowers was a resource. And historically, people would bring thousands of sheep, say, from other neighboring countries or from other regions within Saudi Arabia, bring them to Alula, and they would just graze all of the grass. By grazing that grass, it means the seeds are not being produced. The soil becomes unstable because the roots are gone. The plants have died, the roots are gone. It means the sand starts shifting. Seeds that would have been dormant get exposed to sunlight. They then die. So then you sort of break the system. Then add into that, there's humans that were there with their sheep. Maybe they cut down some acacia trees to, to light fires or to build stockades or to build some accommodation. Suddenly the trees start getting reduced. Well, what the surrounding area looked like 100 years ago is completely different today. And then, of course, you add in huge global effects like global climate change. Somewhere like Saudi Arabia, it's having a big impact as well. So those are more of a global thing that it's quite hard for us to deal with locally. But things like overgrazing, we can address locally. Absolutely. So... When it comes to you, Dr. Stephen, what was your most kind of memorable 
conservation moments? It's actually quite a hard question to answer because I've been very lucky that I've been working in conservation for 30 years. I know you won't believe that, Josh, I know I'm very young, but yes, I've been working in this industry for 30 years now and almost every day is a treat. Every day I see something amazing, but probably just, and I always think, try and think of where you are most recently. If someone says to you, what's the best country you've visited? I usually say the last one. So thinking of something very recent, a real sort of moment of surprise from a sort of wildlife perspective was there's a place here in Alula, it's part of Shiran Nature Reserve, it's called Madakhil. And there's these, they sort of call it the sort of secret canyons where water and wind has cut these very narrow canyons in the rock. And the rocks almost touch at the top, forming like a sort of cathedral almost or a mosque-like. Like a closed gorge kind almost, of. Almost, yes. And it's amazing. And then within that, there are trees. And there was one area where it's like walking through forest. It's, they're fig trees and it's almost a closed canopy. And I never thought I would walk in closed canopy forest. It's almost like a natural terrarium, would you say? Absolutely. That's the very good way of putting it because you're right. Because yes, there was trees, but there would have been other plants and mosses and all sorts of stuff making it yeah, a terrarium. Naturally controlled Absolutely. environment. A really nice area. And I, and, I was, and I was fortunate to get there with work. And then next weekend, I took my wife there as a treat. Let's go and investigate it. It's, it's a wonderful place. Did you see any other wildlife? We did, and that, but we saw lots and lots of footprints, and that was the key thing. And it was just after some of the rains. So there was quite a few pools in some of the rocks, or natural pools, and you could see all the feathers and the hoof, hoof prints and droppings. So it was very clear that animals were using it. So even though we didn't see them, we knew they were there. And my wife loves plants, and we there was some of the local lavenders. And so we went there, and I was like, oh, what's that? She's like, oh my God. Oh my goodness, it's a lavender. And you start smelling it and I know that you know the plant itself and it's just beautiful. So yeah, that was a real treat. Well, I'm so happy that you guys got to enjoy that. And hopefully everybody in the future will be able to experience all that joy and pleasure of really seeing conservation and the result of conservation. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm really happy to hear that. But you also telling me that one of your most memorable conservation moments was seeing a group of ficus trees in this kind of closed off area also sheds lights on it, that even plants are, are also considered wildlife. Yeah, and here in, here in the deserts of Beluda, we do have some pretty charismatic species. You know, Arabian oryx is such a beautiful species and, and people will see them in the future. I, I really hope they will. But this isn't Africa. The plains or the deserts of, of Arabia are not comparable to the plains of, of Africa. So you won't see 20 species in a day. You'll see some species and you'll see some amazing landscapes. But if people look down from the oryx and look at their feet, look at the ground, they will see amazing footprints, amazing patterns caused by wind-blown plants. They'll see unusual black beetles with long legs that look like sort of Martians. If you're lucky, you'll see scorpions. You might see snakes. You might see all these things. And it's those small things that are going to make it key here. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. And when we're back, we're going to talk about what native species have previously gone extinct here on Elola. Artifact with Joshua. On Elola FM podcast, the sound of Arabia. Now we're back with Dr. Stephen. Dr. Stephen, of course, is the leading conservation expert here in Elola. When it comes to species of Elola, has anything gone extinct that was native to Elola? Well, if you look at the short answer is yes. To put that into context, if you look at the rock carvings around here, as many people know, we're spoiled here with beautiful rock carvings, some of them dating back many thousands of years. People traveling through the area, people living in the area would record what they saw in their daily life as these rock carvings. And these rock carvings depict things like aurac, which is like this big extinct cow, sort of bovid species, like a big cow, lions, cheetahs, 
ostriches. So a number of those species have gone extinct. And mentioning things like ostrich and cheetah, the last ostrich went extinct in the region in 1966. That's the Arabian ostrich. And then cheetahs, I think, 60s, 70s. So there was these characteristic species. So they're quite recent losses. And even things like the Arabian oryx in the 70s, there was down to the last handful of oryx were left in the whole of Arabia. And at the time, a few forward-thinking conservationists took those animals into captivity, put them in a number of zoos around the world. Those zoos bred them, brought them back to Arabia. And now we have many thousands of Arabian oryx in the wild and maybe many thousands more in private collections. And that's what we are now re reintroducing back into Alula. Very successfully, we have a few hundred now running around Alula and they are now producing young. So our reintroductions are working, the habitat's right. But yeah, there's been a whole range of different species. So going back even further, so the natural history of Alula stretches back almost a billion years. Was there anything from the paleo perspective that kind of shocked you? Did they find the skeleton or the remains of some, or the depiction of some animal that you were like, wow, I can't believe this was once here? We know there's dinosaurs not too far north from here. We don't think that Alula was probably right for dinosaurs at the time because it was probably more of a shallow sea. And interestingly, of course, Alula wasn't here where we are stood now was... Geologically speaking. Geologically speaking, it was more like where South America is at the moment. <laughs> and it's drifted all that time and it's now come to where it is now in this part of the world. So we haven't found dinosaurs yet. We're keeping our fingers crossed for dinosaurs. But one thing we have got here, which I'm sure you're, you're aware of, is the all these lava tubes are up in Haiba, which is, again, just south, just south of, of Alula. These lava tubes have got some skeletons of animals that have got trapped and have died, or animals that were dragged there by hyenas. Some of these skeletons are, we believe, some species of things like ibex have gone extinct. So we're doing some work to look at this historical DNA to try and understand what species they were, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some really amazing things going back, as I say, almost a billion years. Wow. All right, everybody, we're going to take another short break. And when we're back, we'll be talking about mega fauna and what has been found so far in Alula. Artifact with Joshua. On Elola FM Podcast, the sound of Arabia. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Artifact with Dr. Stephen. Any kind of megafauna that we found that we weren't really expecting? Woolly mammoths or giraffes? Not here at Alula, but again, I think not too far from here, there was an elephant found, which again, is amazing. Elephants walking in the desert, and of course, it wasn't the desert. It was completely different then. But yeah, elephants not too far away. I've actually seen the the skeleton. That's, it's in a museum in Jeddah. It actually handled the, the tusk and everything. So it's, wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But what a, what a privilege. You're able to handle all these things that existed hundreds and thousands of years ago. So when I came across this term, iconic species, what is... I think you've actually mentioned it a few. You call them charismatic species. What is a charismatic slash iconic species. So to me, it's something that people can relate to. So something you can build pride around. In ecological terms, you have things like keystone species, which are very important for the functioning of that ecosystem. Or you might have flagship species, which is, you might talk about conserving tigers because if you conserve a tiger, then that protects the forest. You can't have tigers without forest. If you've got forest, you've got thousands of other species. Iconic species or charismatic species are, are similar to those sort of flagship species, but one sort of plays a bit more on the fact that they are important culturally, that they have that there are traditions associated with them. So an example of a species that we have here in Alula is the Arabian leopard. It is probably the most 
charismatic and the iconic species for all the work we're doing in Alula. That's for a number of reasons. One is that we want to establish pride in that species for people in Arabia. It is linked to history. It is linked to the traditions. It is depicted thousands of years ago in rock carving. Some people are named after it. Exactly. There's, there's many football teams are named after it. There's a whole range of things that associated with this animal. And again, it's that thing I describe it as to people is, think of it as a big pyramid and the, and the Arabian leopard sits at the top of that pyramid. But for that leopard to be there, you have to have so much more. You have to have habitat. You have to have its food. You have to have the, the grasses that, that the herbivores eat. So if a massive pyramid underneath that species at the, at the top there, if we can bring back Arabian leopards to Alula, we, were, we were had to have achieved so much more. We, we would have had to have restored huge areas of habitat, brought back the, the vegetation, brought back the herbivores that the tigers will eat. To get those species back, we have to do so much more. We have to, yeah, there'll be thousands of other species that would have been saved in the name of the Arabian leopard. So the leopard is so charismatic, as we mentioned before, that people name their children after it. It's in poems, it's in stories, it's in legends. But what about the non-iconic species, the not so charismatic species, the not so, the more humble species? Yeah. So the challenge at the moment we have is that Saudi Arabia is blessed with many species of scorpions and many species of snake. Some of the most poisonous states in the world, I think, occur here. And I think the most, most poisonous scorpion, I think, in the world occurs here. Uh, which, I, which, incidentally, an interesting fact here for you, one of the scorpions you find here produces the most valuable liquid in the world. Its venom is being used in all sorts of medical research. And, and I think it's one gallon of its venom. A gallon is something like two million stings or something. But one gallon of that venom is worth something like $36 million. So it's an incredibly valuable product. Wow. So there is, yeah, so there is potentially in these species, there is like certain medical questions waiting in the venom of a scorpion. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're bringing tourists, when you're bringing people that perhaps are not used to outside life, perhaps used to desert life, that's quite a challenge. As I said earlier, every species as far as I'm concerned has its right to exist on Earth. Some of the species are a little bit hard to sell. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of cleaning up around Alula as we clean that to make it more usable, make it better for, for our other aspirations with Alula. We are exposing scorpions and snakes. And how do we stop people killing them? How do we convince people that they are important or they, they should be caught and relocated? So yeah, there are other species we're trying to protect. And there's a lot of like mystery and unfounded disgust when it comes to some of the scorpions and the snakes. People have this idea that these species are out for them. So can you give us, can you share some enlightenment with us? Are these animals seeking really to harm us? And are they really the nuisance that we imagine them to be? Where I live, it's just not too far from Alula here. I live in a lovely little farmhouse, but it's constantly being invaded by cockroaches and scorpions. As a conservationist, I see the value in that species. It has a very important function, clearing up rubbish and doing what, doing what cockroaches do. A weed is a plant in the wrong place. A pest is just an animal in the wrong place. And maybe the animal's not in the wrong place. Maybe we're in the wrong place. I think, but yeah, joking aside, I think things like cockroaches, if people do have them in their house and they do get rid of them, there's plenty more cockroaches. Yeah. It's not like you've got an Arabian leopard running around your farm and you take that out. Right. It may be one of a handful left in the world. So... What are you doing or how are you utilizing your position at the Royal Commission for Lola to not only shed light on the iconic species, but also the non-charismatic species? So all that we're doing, what we're trying to do is we're trying to raise awareness 
amongst local, the local people, amongst people nationally, regionally, and across the world of what we're doing in Alula. We're doing that obviously to protect the animals of Alula, but by raising awareness of, of amongst people of the importance of species within the ecosystem, the importance of habitats, the, the importance of species preservation, all those things, people get a better understanding of the, of the natural world. And I think when people are more exposed to things, they become the more you become familiar with something, the more you realise it's not harmful. So if you do have a cockroach and it happens to run across your foot, it's not going to bite your foot off. It's just going to run away and hide. So and if people's reaction is not to squash it, if people's reaction is to sort of say, oh, there's a cockroach. It's an animal. So I think it's that sort of, we're not specifically going out there to teach people that cockroaches are fine or that scorpions are nice. What we're trying to do is spread awareness that everything in the natural world has its place and everything in the natural world needs to be protected and enhanced. And by doing that, we're just increasing people's appreciation of the world around. And I guess that brings me exactly to my next question very naturally. And when we're back, we'll be discussing what people can do in order to join us in conservation efforts. Artifact with Joshua on Elola FM podcast, The Sound of Arabia. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Artifact with Dr. Stephen. Dr. Stephen, of course, is the leading conservation expert here in Elola. How can the non-expert, the person who's not working directly with you or on your team, average people, average citizens, what can they do to kind of join conservation efforts? How can they be a part of conservation efforts? I think one of the expressions I really like is the think globally, act locally. And I think when you sort of read of the challenges that are facing the world, increasing sea rises, increasing temperatures, storms, it's like, what can I do as an individual? You probably as an individual can't make a difference. But if you've got 10 million individuals doing their thing individually, you've suddenly got population of a small country working together. So I think what people can do is, is just be mindful of the world around them. <laughs> if you hunt, stop hunting, but not many people do. I think just being, just appreciating what you've got around you, being open to, uh, to stopping and smelling that flower, being, being open to stopping and wondering at that lovely scorpion running past you on the street. I think that's something people could do. Is there a daily habit that perhaps people could forego that would have a tremendous impact. If you were asking me that in the UK, where I come from, I would say, yes, turn your heating down or walk to the shops, don't drive your car to the shops. But when you're talking somewhere like yeah, Saudi, Arabia. Saudi Arabia, there's many things we can do as an individual. But I think the most important thing is, is to learn to appreciate the natural world. And I think everything else comes naturally. And you told me something that I, I have not been able to forget, which was that even the existence of these small things that we might consider as nuisances are actually indicators of how healthy our environment is. So if there were no scorpions, no snakes, no mean looking plants, perhaps we are facing an environmental crisis. And these small nuisances are indicators that our environment is still somewhat healthy and of course it can use some improvement but those are kind of good signs or good omens absolutely one of the things a lot of people can relate to probably is when you drive your car and you get all the bugs on your windscreen or your windshield that's been met now regarded as, as an indicator yeah that as numbers of bugs on your windshield has got smaller and smaller it's just showing how the, the environment we're living in is getting worse and worse because if you haven't got bugs then you haven't got birds you haven't got birds you haven't got this if you haven't got that you haven't got that everything's so interrelated so you're absolutely right you currently are the leading expert in conservation and natural heritage in Urala. What are you doing to prepare the next generation of conservationists? 
whether they are going to end up working in Ola or they'll be working somewhere else in Saudi Arabia. So the key thing I'm doing, obviously I'm not Saudi, I'm, I'm British. I see my tenure here is very limited. My plan is to uh, leave here with an excellently trained, highly motivated team of Saudis that, that are here undertaking conservation in their country, dealing with issues in, in their homes, in their community. Building capacity is, is a very fundamental part of the work we're doing here. So we do have, and we are trying to recruit into our team as many young Saudis uh, as we can. So they increase their hands-on experience. We're trying to expose as many people as possible to what we're doing here so that the Saudi population could learn from what we're doing here in Alu and the other Kika projects and other reserves. Uh, we're trying to expose our team to as many overseas opportunities to get wider world experience. And then there's much more far-reaching things like we're about to launch a scholarship scheme with our partners in the Arabian Leopard Fund where we will be providing opportunities for people from the Arabian region to travel overseas or to travel to top universities in Arabia to, to undertake training so that people see working for, with wildlife as a career. I think it's probably not seen at the moment as a career choice for many people here. There's probably other things that people will be aspiring to do, but it is a very noble and very worthwhile. I would say that conservation work is more relevant to us on Earth than perhaps the work of astronauts, even though the work that astronauts are doing, of course, is very important. But the work that you and your team are doing here, it has a more direct impact on our day-to-day -day lives. Conservation, biodiversity conservation or, or environmental protection, that field is probably the most important field in the world. Because if you're a car designer and you're designing a headlight for your car and you get it slightly wrong, you might sell a few less cars. But society as itself won't really suffer. If we as the environmental community get it wrong, if we can't stop what's happening from happening, if the world ecosystems collapse, if we fail our mission to protect the world, world is done in for, humanity's done in for. So I say it should be the most glamorous job that people want to do because if you're working in conservation, you're saving the world. And then, yes, working with children is, is very noble and is very important. Those children need a very nice, secure, healthy world to be brought up in. So essentially, you guys are, are kind of like cheerleaders of life. This was a delightful conversation, and I'm so happy that I'll be able to share with our listeners some of this insight that we got from you, Dr. Stephen. Thank you for your time. No worries at all. I hope there's some really interesting nuggets there for people. It was excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that was Dr. Stephen Brown, the Vice President of Wildlife and Natural Heritage here at the Royal Commission for Alola. Thanks for listening to Artifacts. Thanks. Subscribe for more great content right here on Alola FM Podcast. The Sound of Arabia.